Oh me, oh my. Where has the past month gone? It's been exactly one month since my last episode release. That's a bit longer than I really like to go between episodes, but it's been a busy semester in the classroom. I'm sure you understand. So here we are, mid-March 2021. Maybe the last pandemic teaching semester? Oh gee, I hope so. Actually, I've honestly been feeling pretty good about this semester. Sometimes when folks ask how things are going, I say, you know what, this is almost starting to feel like a regular semester, except that I'm wearing a mask all the time. And then after that, I realize how many things have actually changed in the classroom and out of the classroom. So that's, that's almost getting to the sense of how much we may be starting to normalize this. But really, I, I am feeling pretty good about what's been going on. So uh, I, I am doing a group A and group B format, but I am not using Zoom. I have found a way to get around doing that, even though I only have half of my students in the classroom. So my, my group A will come in on Mondays and my group B will stay home and do other work that I've assigned. So things that I might normally have done in the classroom, group problem solving that I might have done, they're still working on together uh, in their groups on Zoom and I'll send them some videos, most of which I'm finding on YouTube. I'm trying to not create my own videos. I've created a couple of them, but I'm, I'm really trying to, to practice what I've been sort of preaching uh, and and not recreating the wheel of finding some decent videos out there. It doesn't have to be me talking about capacitors, for instance. There, there are some other fantastic videos out there that get to the main points that I'm interested in. Then on Wednesday, group B will come in and I'll do the same lesson with them that I did with my, my group A on Monday. And then the group A will stay at home and they'll do the same activities at home that the group B had done Monday. And then Friday, here's where I've shaken things up a little bit. I have everybody come in, but I can't have everybody come in at once. So I, I have the group A come in during my morning lab, uh, my morning class time. And then in the afternoon during lab time, and we're doing labs completely remotely, I'm taking an hour of that lab time on a Friday afternoon and I'm bringing those students in. So I get to see my students two out of three days each week in the classroom and just one of those three days then they're doing additional work and I'm feeling pretty good about that. I, I feel like we're actually moving through the content at at a similar pace to what I normally do, which is usually fairly slow. So uh, I'm keeping up with my normal slow pace. I'm happy with that. But you know, I, I'm in the lab space. I'm using a studio type format now. I was in a regular classroom for the first day or two and I said, forget this, the lab space was open. So I, I took us into the lab space. We've got these, these big tables where they can sit around the tables and still be socially distanced. We've got the whiteboards, there's, there's group discussions. Uh, it's been, I think it's been working pretty well. This semester, I'm teaching the Physics 2 class for the pre-health professional majors. Uh, almost everybody in the class is thinking of taking the MCAT and, and going on to medical school of some sort. So this has been my most IPLS type of class to date. I've made connections to the electric dipole of the heart and EKG readings. We've looked at uh, sodium ions and potassium ions as they rush across channels and, and some of the physics there that's associated with these different concentration gradients and these electric potential gradients. Uh, we've made connections with, with circuits to, to fluid physics, uh, even before we get to fluids, which we'll be, which we'll be doing in about a week. Um, uh, so making these connections of these, these circuits with resistors breaking into different series and parallel segments and how that could be thought of like a circulatory system. 
And then sort of the big model, uh, which was the action potential, this propagation of an electrical signal down an axon. And thinking of the resistance of the membrane, the resistance of the axon, the capacitance of the membrane, and, and how this acts like an RC circuit as you have this, this signal propagating in these jump steps down, down the axon. So it's been really great to bring in all of these pieces as I'm learning them better, and the students have really responded well to, to these topics. But let's switch gears and get to my guest. Cue the music. Welcome to Physics Alive. I'm Brad Moser, and I want to help fellow educators spark new life into the physics classroom. Each episode, I'll draw inspiration from the teachers, researchers, students, and professionals who explore innovative learning, motivate new curricula, apply physics in their careers, and encourage an inclusive and healthy classroom environment. Good physics day, everyone. Before the music, I said we were going to switch gears, but actually, we don't have to switch too many gears at all. We'll be talking studio classroom spaces and physics for life science majors, among many other topics. Today, I'm speaking with Don Meredith, professor of physics at the University of New Hampshire. I've been connected with Don for a number of years now, first through my old buddy, Jamie Visenka, and then in the physics for life science community more broadly. Don has been an integral member of the physics education research community since the late 1990s, and she has been a principal investigator on eight PER grants. In this honest and down-to-earth conversation, we discuss not only the ideas and methods that have worked well, but also what, what hasn't worked and why. There is just as much for the education community to learn from crash landings as from the soaring successes. But don't worry, Don has a lot of successes to share as well. So settle in as we take a tour through important books, scale up, modeling physics, rounding cows, the mingling of biologists and physicists, and we'll discover why the heck trees can get so tall. All right, today I am speaking with Don Meredith, a professor at the University of New Hampshire. Don, thank you so much for joining me on Physics Alive. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm delighted to have some time to chat with you. As you know, one of my favorite communities right now is the Introductory Physics for Life Sciences, the IPLS community. And you are an early and integral member of that community. You were trained as a physicist, but now you are in cahoots with the biologists. Uh, this overlap really doesn't seem to happen all that often. So I'm curious to hear how you got started. So let's go back to the beginning. You're a little girl playing with stuffed animals. <laughs> what are your make-believe adventures? <laughs> okay. yeah, we don't have to go that far back unless you find that that's more. So, I, so I, um, I'm not sure I can go quite that far back, but uh, certainly in high school, my interests, uh, I was not at all interested in physics. I did think biology was kind of cool, but I was more interested in politics. And that's kind of where I started my, when I went to college, I thought I'd do politics. And I actually worked in Mo Udall's presidential campaign in January 76. So that was quite a while ago. And I got a, a somewhat disillusioned because I found out it was really hard to know what was really right in politics, that people would actually lie to you and tell you partial truths and things like that. And that was not very satisfying. And in my travels after the campaign, I ended up in New Mexico and found out that there was this wonderful college there, St. John's College, where there are no majors and you read the great books of the Western world. And wow. so I got to, and so you do philosophy and literature and science and math. And so I got to learn physics from 
Newton and Einstein and <clears throat> uh, Galileo. And it was just fascinating. And I felt like you could really sink your teeth in and look at something from different points of view and come up with the same answer. Whereas in politics, if you looked at things from different points of view, you would come up with different answers. And that was uh, fundamentally probably disturbing more than anything. So, so I, I got hooked on physics there at St. John's. And then because that was a, a really non-standard preparation, the, the physics and math you get are far more conceptual and not so much process. So then I went to UCLA for a couple of years as a non-matriculated student um, to get enough physics and math. And then I went to Caltech uh, for graduate school. So that was the kind of long path to physics. Does St. John still do their, their program this oh, way? Oh, so they do, they courses? do. Oh, uh -huh. so, so this is a shout out. If There's two campuses, one in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and one in Annapolis, Maryland. And they're very small schools, very unique and unusual schools. That's cool. Oh, I love hearing about that sort of stuff. <laughs> and, and just one other thing, because I know it's, you know, when we talk about active learning, uh, the way these classes are run is that there's about 20 people in a class. You all sit around a table and you're responsible for your own learning. You're responsible for reading the texts and sharing your ideas and working through the ideas together. So that, that was a really, it was so beneficial, so useful. And I think, you know, that's informed the way I think about teaching and learning now. Yeah, I was thinking that just this hearing about that sort of background. Uh, so many of us educators model what other folks have done in in our education and and we can't we can't but help do some of those things even if they weren't very useful things so oh yeah <laughs> you're saying we model both the good and the bad in our past mm -hmm. yeah so, yeah i'll be really interested along the way if if you kind of keep that in mind um sort of drawing back on that experience where maybe that that might have influenced something that you did along the way that'd be that'd be interesting uh, a little psychological study here today on today's episode maybe as well <laughs> So your, your field of research now is physics education research. Yep. Uh, nowadays, PER is a more widely recognized field and graduate students are seeking out programs to pursue a PhD specifically in PER. This landscape seemed to be shifting in this direction while I was a graduate student, um, sort of in the range of 2000 to 2010, but I still didn't hear about it until I was already deeply entrenched in a traditional field. So I was kind of on the cusp of that generation where it was really becoming an option. Uh, I think in your generation, that probably wasn't an option at all. I think almost everybody is probably doing PER afterward. They they got into it later from some other uh, from some other direction. So I'm curious what what led you from traditional research to PER. Yeah, so definitely, I was there was no PER when I was a graduate student, and um, my graduate work was in quantum chaos connected to nuclear physics which was fantastic and interesting and got me and then I went on to work at university get a tenure track job at University of New Hampshire and the pivotal moment was when I mean I really enjoyed teaching and um, but I noticed that I particularly remember teaching graduate math methods and we were doing uh, separation of variables to solve differential equations and I remember thinking that, you know, I was using 
I was trying as hard as I could, and I, I perceived that many my, that my students were really engaged and motivated, and yet they weren't learning as much. I mean, they were learning, but they weren't learning as much. And I go like, we're we're all doing the best we can. What's what's going wrong? And there really weren't any options except just kind of trial and error to make things better. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember the exact timing of this. But um, this is when Joe Reddish was beginning to um, make his move into PR. And I had actually interviewed with Joe for a nuclear physics postdoc some years earlier. So I knew him and other, there's a large nuclear group at University of New Hampshire. So we were collectively aware of Joe and he came and gave a talk about physics education research. You know, and the big takeaway message was there's experiments and there's theory and we can really make informed decisions about how to improve our teaching. It's not just trial and error. It doesn't have to be that way. Mm. And he uh, let me know about a workshop that summer put on by Priscilla Laws, um, who was developing workshop physics at that time. And so that was a, just a tremendous experience to be there. There were lots of other people there. I, I don't remember everyone, but I remember um, David Sokoloff and David Hammer were there. And we were given lots of the seminal papers to look at and read. And that was the beginning. So that's how I got started. As I'm as I'm doing some of these episodes and, you know, I, I spoke with Joe and, and now speaking with you and I'm, I'm sure I'll... I'll get a chance to talk to some other folks who have some historical knowledge. It, it it almost I marvel at the fact that how new this field really is yet. That uh, many of these names we we talk about are you know a lot of that early work was maybe happening in the eighties and and nineties, maybe a little bit earlier with with some other folks. I think of like a, Arnold Aarons, maybe Arnold Aarons, um maybe a Robert Carplus connected yes, with yes. with modeling a bit, but. Yes. You know, it's not going back to Einstein and Newton here. We're right, <laughs> we're, right, right, right. Not that just, far. <laughs> just a handful of, of decades. So it's it's really interesting seeing how new the field is. Two of your early grants were focused on discovery-based labs and scale-up. Um, so these two seem related to me. And for many years, I taught in a studio classroom where there was no distinction between lab and lecture. And class time is devoted to labs, activities, group problem solving, discussion, all that that great stuff. So my understanding is that ScaleUp takes that model and scales it up to class sizes of 100 or more. And I've seen pictures of these large spaces with dozens of round tables with computers and equipment and whiteboards on the walls and learning assistants throughout the room to help professors manage activities and discussion. Since these grants were in the late 90s, early 2000s, I feel like this was kind of the early days of ScaleUp. Um, so how did you end up getting involved with this? And what was it like to be on that frontier? So I have to admit, uh, uh, I have no memory of the exact moment I learned about scale up, but at some point pretty early on, it must have been, you know, 97, somewhere between 96 and 97, um, that I learned about Bob Beekner's work in scale up. So I got connected with Bob Beekner very early. And I was also working with a math colleague of mine, Kelly Black, and we wanted to teach an integrated math and physics course um, because, you know, in, in physics, from the physics point of view, 
there's a lot of math you want to call on, but the students sometimes haven't learned it yet. Because in our, our university, it's a co-rec and not a pre-rec. Mm-hmm. And, and then the math students were going, why do I have to learn this? It's not useful, you know. <laughs> We've heard that before. So we decided we wanted to teach that class. And then at the same time, we also decided we wanted more active learning. And Bob was kind enough to uh, host us. And we went down for a visit to see his classroom down there and to learn more firsthand about how that worked. And then, of course, the biggest thing here is room and furniture, right? That mm-hmm. here's where you know that, you know, the institutional structure is really limiting or, or not. And so initially, we just had 25 students in a standard lab room. And that was, that was actually good, right? I mean, we were trying something so new, we don't, don't want to do it with 100 students. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we started off small, and it took... Um, probably another five years to get a room that was initially designed to be a studio room. And it wasn't 100. It was more like uh, 50, 50 students. And we, uh, we broke with Bob's advice, and we got lollipop-shaped tables. So, <laughs> and it's exactly what it sounds like, a circle with a, with a rectangular piece. I don't, I don't uh, suggest it. It did not work out well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Bob's advice about circular tables uh, should be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so in our department, really, um, we, we assessed student learning gains in the, in the calculus physics course, and those learning gains were good. And... I think some of the key things that are useful is that one of my colleagues, Bob Simpson, who had taught the, the intro course for a long time, he taught this, and, and he was really happy with his ability to interact with the students, and, it, and he was much happier with that format, and kind of having his stamp of approval was, was nice. So seeing that the students were learning more and that it was just such a much better experience to work closely with the students and to have conversations with the students. Um, so it's, it's gotten a lot of um, uptake in the department. So we now teach about half of our uh, intro calculus-based students in the studio format. Yeah, I'll, I'll be kind of curious over time to, to learn from, from different folks, yourself included, about how, how these, these studio environments um, are, are working out. You know, I, at, at University of New England, we had the smaller classrooms. We were fitting just 24 into a classroom. And, you know, we were doing some of the uh, pre and post test assessments, such as the force concept inventory and uh, the test for understanding graphs and kinematics. And, you know, at, at times I felt like overall our our gains weren't a whole lot better than they might they might be in a standard lecture class. But the student response once. Once they realize this is how we do physics, I think there was a, a little a little resistance the first year or two that we were doing it. But once students knew this is how we're doing physics here, there was a general acceptance, and I think students really got into that. And a lot of the feedback I began hearing was that they really liked how we were doing that, and there was a better attitude toward physics. and And that to me is enough to say that 
that this this is a good way of doing things, even if we don't necessarily you know blow off the charts with with gains on these as assessments. If we're sort of breaking even, but the student experience is a better experience, I, I think that that makes it worth it. Yeah, and and I hope we can do both actually. So I should I, I just want to give another shout out to my colleague Mike Briggs, who has done um, a fantastic job with Studio in our department, and he another another advantage of that is there's just so much of a more personal relationship and i heard a high school teacher once say long ago students want to know three things the first day is this stuff worth learning can i learn it and does the teacher care about me and mm. that last one does the teacher care about me i is in the studio classroom is much easier to convince students of that, I think, mm -hmm. than when you have personal conversations with them. And of course, in the studio classroom, you, we've got learning assistants and teaching assistants. Uh, in the scale-up, we have a professor and several TAs and uh, several learning assistants. And the way my colleague Mike Briggers runs that is they meet, they hit that group, that those, those facilitators meet twice a week and go over what, what the students are going to do and how the students might think about it and, and how to help the students without giving the answer away. And so they have a really, it's a really great experience for the teaching assistants and the learning assistants. And then that, that flows over into uh, a really great experience for the majority of the, the students as well. So he's been able to show both that they're happier about it and that they're, they are learning more. So he's done some of those um, assessment tests. Win-win. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's, that's great. As you're gonna, as you're gonna see, uh, I'm gonna keep referencing grants. And this, this, this was the way I, I ended up doing. This is the way I ended up doing the interview with Joe Reddish. Uh, there was a, there was a, a trail of grants behind him that I could follow, and I was able to do that with you. And it, and it gives me a, a perspective of, of sort of the projects you were working on, and I know they all evolve one from another. So, so around 2008, then you earned a grant for modeling physics in an integrated physics course for biologists. So. Uh, this becomes now an even nearer and dearer topic for me since right. now we're not only doing, say, a studio type classroom and now modeling a more specific way of looking at uh, kind of a, a constructivist approach, a, a lab activity sort of approach. When did you get involved with the modeling community and what were your goals for this particular grant? So that, that grant was our first uh, foray. So I should say it was in in collaboration with my biology colleague, Jessica Bolker, and with your colleague, Jamie Vasenka from the University of New England. And our goal was to create an integrated um, biology physics course for the life science students. So it was our IPLS course. Mm -hmm. And we felt modeling physics was maybe a good way to go in the labs. However, this is a case where that didn't work out as well as we had hoped. Um, so I'll ask you a question, Brad, right? To, mm. to really get into modeling physics, right? That, that's, there's a fair learning curve for the instructor, right? Yeah, I, I took a, a two-week workshop before I got started at, at UNE, and that made, that made all the difference to, to be immersed in it eight hours a day for two weeks. And I don't think... 
I could have done it otherwise. If it just was a, a day long workshop at an AAPT meeting, that, that wouldn't have been enough. That would have I could have done the first lab that way and then said, now what? I think we didn't we didn't appreciate how much how important the professional development of the instructor was. And so given that the labs are facilitated by teaching assistants and teaching assistants do not have that time for that two-week workshop and there's a large turnover in teaching assistants so even if it just was not workable to make that happen so uh, it it seems like just this wonderful i've seen it i've seen it work um i've seen some videos of the wonderful interactions that happen in modeling physics and i i'm in awe of that but it's not something that we could do i, I think i haven't said at this point what, how big our class was. Our class is three, goes, went between 250 and 320 students. So those wonderful things that I've seen in modeling classes of 20 just did not scale up in our situation at all. I mean, if people could see the faces I'm attempting to make to try <laughs> to understand, it's like 250, 300 students and and this is this isn't a scale up space. Uh, uh, uh. Oh, oh, oh! Sorry. So let me be clear here. Sorry, we have our calculus based class, which has been scale up. Okay. And now we have okay. our algebra based class, which is the IPLS class, and that mm -hmm. is not yet in in scale up. And there are talk. There's talk in the department about that, and there's some thoughts of a new space. But yeah, mm -hmm. I, I would guess that that's at least a few years off. Okay. Okay. So did you just have many, many, many smaller sections oh. of studio base or was it trying to kind of do modeling in, in modeling a just lecture lab? In the lab. For just okay. Okay. In Which I could see being possible, but logistically it would be a lot of planning to do plus all that training for all of those TAs. Wow. Okay. Right. 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 So, so I definitely see the challenge there. So, um, that did not work as planned, which is unfortunate, but in hindsight, completely could have been expected. But now lessons for all of us. Yeah. Yes. Lessons learned. Things don't go as planned. Is is there a teacher education program for science education that you have at UNH? Because I'm, I'm wondering if there could be a uh, class that was basically modeling instruction for physics, chemistry, biology, since all of those exist now, if, if that could become part Dang, of what an interesting the curriculum. Idea. At our university, the way we do teacher ed is students have, get an undergraduate degree in their discipline. So these are for people who are middle school or high school teachers. And then they, there's a, like a one-year um, master's program to get certification. So it's a little different than um, some other places you can get an undergraduate degree and be certified. But having a modeling course would be a very, I can see how that would be very cool and useful. Mm. So now by the second decade of the, the 2000s, uh, you seem firmly in, entrenched in finding the best way to teach physics to biology and pre-health majors. You've seen that uh, maybe the modeling instruction environment isn't the best. So now I met you in this capacity through your work developing a fluids concept inventory with Jamie Vasenka, so my colleague for eight years at UNE, who we've mentioned. Uh, in 2012, then you wrote the paper Rounding Off the Cow, which is still one of my favorite uh, titles, uh, chronicling your experience developing an IPLS course with your uh, with your biology colleague, Jessica. And then in 2013, you wrote a paper with Joe Reddish called uh, Reinventing Physics for Life Science Majors. So at this point, you seem to not 
be just entrenched in exploring IPLS, but you're at the forefront. Maybe you came up with the name for it, for all I know. I don't know. Uh, leading the charge. Uh, so in that vein, you were also uh, a member of the big grant for developing the Living Physics Portal. So why are you so passionate about the development of IPLS classes? Well, at this point, I, it, it goes back to Jessica, Jessica Bolker, who's my um, biology colleague. Um, and she got me started in this uh, back in probably 2007 or so. And it was her personal story, which I'll share as best I can, is that she was, you can imagine that um, she was a good student having turned into a professor. So when she was uh, asked to take physics as a biology major, she just said, I have no idea why I need to do this. I, I hate every, well, hate may be a little strong, but I'm not enjoying this at all. And through some fluke of rules, she managed to get out of the second semester and counted herself quite lucky. And then um, as a graduate student, she took a biomechanics course with Mimi Cole. And she was just, I believe the word is gobsmacked. It's a good word to use. <laughs> And how important physics was in understanding biological systems. And she said, why, why, why did nobody tell me this earlier? And so that's, that's kind of been the, the, the inspiration story. And we've seen the same thing um, in that paper, Rounding Off the Cow. Glad you like the name. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, if we, if we look at the data in there, there's some nice data from the students, you know, both um, some quotes from students that just say, oh, man, you know, talking about biological systems just makes us so much more interesting. And um, we took some quantitative data and the students were saying, yeah, this is this really it, it, it's motivating. It's interesting. It's about the right amount all those sorts of things were we were getting positive feedback from the students so knowing that they were finding it useful and engaging was use was uh really really keeps you keeps you going and then and then <laughs> you know at first i didn't know how many how hard was it going to be to find interesting physics in biology and the answer is oh my gosh <laughs> there are just so many cool things, so many cool things that are accessible to me as a physicist and to my students as beginning physics students and biology majors from all different kinds of, all different sub-disciplines within biology. Well, so while we're at this, this was a question I had for a little bit later, but let's just jump into it now. So what, what are some of your favorite IPLS problems and, and topics? So the one I get excited about all the time is countercurrent exchanges. And, uh, oh, so Steve Vogel, who I also haven't mentioned yet, Steve Vogel uh, is this biologist who underneath the hood is really a mechanical engineer. Um, and he has written many, many books, uh, Vital Circuits, Life of a Leaf, uh, oh, yes, you're showing me over Zoom comparative biomechanics. Yes. So, and I learned from him somewhere, somewhere in one of his books about countercurrent exchanges. And I love this topic. But here's, let's see if I can do the short story. Is <clears throat> these are structures, these of, of veins and arteries. 
And I'll take a gull. There they are in many different places, but we'll just talk about veins and arteries and a gull. And they do this amazing thing. They allow the gull to have a warm-blooded core and cold-blooded feet. And, and they do this because there's this really fine mesh of arteries and veins that pass right by each other. And so there is, and so cold blood coming up from the feet pass right by warm blood coming down from the core and they, they exchange. What they're exchanging is heat and there's a, there can be a nearly 100% uh, exchange of heat so, so that you don't um, lose any energy as they exchange. And of course the advantage is, it's, so the, the thing I love about this is first of all the problem is easy to understand you know that if a gull has their feet in cold ocean water, that that could lead to hypothermia and that's very dangerous. So the problem is, is quite understandable. And then the solution can be easily modeled. You can talk about, you know, compare the, uh, how fast uh, heat can be exchanged if you have a very fine mesh of arteries and veins or if you have just one large artery and one large vein. And, and so you can model and get some numerical results and see how much more efficient that fine mesh is. And it turns out gulls have a really fine mesh. Humans have a similar um, structure in their arms, but it's not nearly so fine. And that's because we mm. don't need such a fine mesh. Um, so it's got everything I could hope for in an IPLS question. It's, mm -hmm. it's got, um, you can understand it conceptually, you can model it uh, quantitatively, and it, it relates structure and function in a really nice way. Yeah, now that you, you bring up Steve Vogel, um... I think I, I have to do a, I have to do a, an episode about him at some point. I yeah. think I know I can't do an interview with him because he passed away a few years ago. Yeah, but I, I remember I, I taught a book at uh, taught a course out of the book Comparative Biomechanics um, a number of years back, and it was it was such a fun course. It was really where I started learning a whole lot of the great applications of physics in in biology. I had a, a classroom filled with a majority of marine science majors and they were eating this stuff up. Oh, so it was, wonderful. it was a whole lot of fun to, uh, to do that. All right. So countercurrent exchangers, that that's one. Do you have any other favorite topics that you've, that you've gotten into? So it, I guess I'll measure, mention the other one that's been on my mind lately is how does sap move up trees? And, uh, actually, so Joe Reddish and Todd Cook of university of Maryland, and I have been chatting about this for a while. Um, because there's so many details of it. Hmm. Um, <laughs> and it's an interesting kind of modeling. Pedagogically, it might be interesting to use as a way to help students build models and evaluate models. So you can think about, and, th and the thing that's nice about it is the, f the first things that you think about aren't, don't work. So having a vacuum at the top will only, uh, at the top of a xylem tube. So water goes up a xylem tube in a tree up to the leaves. So the vacuum at the top will only get you up 10 meters or so. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, and I've forgotten all the other numbers. Kappa, 
Yeah, uh, capillary action doesn't get you much at all. Yeah, capillary action. It depends, maybe of course. Feet, maybe? Um, I can look it up. <laughs> And it doesn't get you far. We'll leave that as an exercise to the audience. That's right. That's right. And it depends, of course, on how big the tubes are. So the smaller the tubes, the higher it mm. goes. Mm. Um, but but if you use numbers, um, real numbers from real trees, I think it's mm -hmm. it's on the order of something like six meters. Mm -hmm. And then if you use osmotic pressure, um, then you can get... Uh, maybe again around 10 meters or so, but nowhere near 115, 115 meters. But then the, the thing that you have to realize is that there is, that water can pull on water, that there is such a thing as negative pressure. So I don't know, Brad, if that sounds odd to you, but, but the hydrogen bonds between the water molecules is so strong it can uh, hold up to 280 megapascals. So you can get a significant, basically, tension that can yes. that can pull the water up. I this uh, this is a topic that's come up before, and and I always I always tell the students there's no such thing as a suck force. There's, it's always <laughs> pressures pushing. Except this seems to be a case where it's actually kind of like a suck force. Uh, yeah, yeah, and you have to be careful. And, and one of the big things that we've talked about is that for gases, of course, gases cannot suck. Mm -hmm. But water, water can pull. Water can pull other water. And so that's a really important distinction between gases and, uh, and liquids is liquids mm -hmm. can pull. But then you have to add something else because, yeah, so it keeps going. <laughs> and we've been talking about this for about six months, I think. A column of water can support itself incredibly high. But then you have to ask, what's, what's holding that top layer of water in position? And it turns out, this is why, so Todd, Todd Cook is the biologist on this little team. And so he, you know, his knowledge of trees is essential. At the top, in the leaves, there are... Is it the stoma? Does that have to do with transpiration somehow? Yeah, the, well, but the holding in place, the holding mm -hmm. in place has to do with microfibrils. Oh. And these are these matrices. I'll call, you know, you imagine, imagine a piece of, of a a fabric, so a weave, but but the holes in between the p the pieces of fiber can be as small as they're on the scale of nanometers, mm -hmm. and so essentially we've got surface tension in a nanometer size hole, and that that can mm. hold a column of water, 115 meters high. Oh, that's so cool! Yes, yeah, it, it just keeps giving. <laughs> And, and there are other pieces too about, and then it's transpiration. So it's transpiration. So the water is continuously evap. Well, maybe not continuously. Often, mm -hmm. Todd would correct me and say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if it's if there's if the relative humidity is high, things aren't things aren't evaporating. So as the water evaporates and you lose water from the top of the column. It can pull up water below, and then you get a flow. 
the when I had to laugh when you were saying that, oh, but there's but there's more. And that was that was the theme of the course when I, I taught out of the comparative biomechanics book. And I, I began I began calling it bonus physics. <laughs> uh, it's like, well, here's the main physics, but there's this and there's this and there's bonus physics. Yeah. And the students got a kick out of that because it just kept happening again and again and again. Biology, teaching the physics of biology is is difficult because biology is not are well they're not spherical cows they are not not at all they are not <laughs> uh and you can try to you can try to round off those edges but then if you really want to talk about the real system you got to start putting the nitty gritties back on again because that's that's where that's where the a more complete understanding is going to come from absolutely i i was at a farmer's market in in the fall and i i bought some maple syrup yes and it, they were telling me, it's like, well, do you want the dark maple syrup or the light maple syrup? And oh, the physicist in me just got going. I'm like, well, okay, what's good? It's like, I like the flavor of the dark maple syrup better, but what's the difference? I always thought it was thicker. And they say, no, it's not thicker. It's actually about at different times of the year, the sap runs basically at different speeds. And this, the time of year when it is running will determine what color and sugar content is it's going to have and i started asking deeper questions and i started getting blank stares so i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna lay off now we we can find all of the all of the bonus physics and then there's bonus bonus physics because now it's also dependent on the season and on the temperature and oh my gosh yes and yeah we we started to go down the path of do we really understand what osmosis is and so i won't go there with you because <laughs> I'm just beginning to learn. But here's some bonus, bonus physics, just because you said that. Uh, we're learning about something called water potential, which is okay. a biology. Yes. Have you heard this? It's a biology. Yeah, yeah, because I, yeah, I've tried to look into osmosis a bit more to teach it in further detail and learn that we might, as a science community, not actually know the real answer yet. Yeah, but the water potential seems to take into account all the different reasons that water moves in a plant. So it's, you know, is there a solute? Is there hydrostatic pressure? Is there um, adherence to the xylem walls or to the, to the, to the soil? Is there, is there a physical pumping mechanism of some kind? So, so there's bonus, bonus physics in there that, that I'm still learning. So with, with all of that, that, that reminds me of, of one of the other challenges. And, you know, we're talking about just the, the challenge of is something like a modeling instruction format even successful? Well, now to think about, let's say, doing modeling instruction and IPLS at the same time. And I found that to be a, a significant challenge because... Because modeling is looking to do one thing; it, it's it's building it's building these these simple models for physics and kind of building that story there through experiment, and that right. takes all your time. Right. But now, if you want to bring in the biology, and the biology has a lot of complex physics, so yes, it has those simple models underlying it. But as you go to try to to talk about the deeper complexities, well, now that begins to take more time. You have to build on top of those simple models, and and I'm wondering where am I? Where do I get that time? So yeah, there's there's this extra challenge now of of doing an IPLS class. If you want to get into sort of some of the depth there, you may have to make some other sacrifices. So it's it's always it's always this this give and take. 
Yeah, and, and so if you were going to do a modeling physics IPLS course where you help students model biological systems as well, right, you'd have to really go back and think about what do you want them to take out of this course. So what has been your experience developing an IPLS course at, at UNH, working with biologists and co-teaching with a biologist? Well, it's I think it's... <laughs> totally changed my head and how I organize and think about this course for sure. So I've been working with my colleague Jessica for so long, I think I don't remember how I, how I thought about this course before we worked together. You know, the first thing was, was going through the topics and kind of this question that you and I just were th thinking about. Um, what's really important in the IPLS course. Do they need to know about projectile motion, for example? Looking at the physics topics with the eyes of a biologist was really essential to saying, okay, you know, something like projectile motion might not be worth the time that we have to put into it. And another thing from Steve Vogel was knowing that, oh yeah, projectile motion can be interesting, but only if you add in drag, because there are, for example, small plants that, that, that explosively let their seeds go, but the drag is a huge piece in that. Oh, well, yeah. And then swimming in flight, you get a lot of Absolutely. great stuff there as well. But yeah, you need to invest... A significant amount of time to to develop those ideas and and somewhere i think it just evolved slowly as it became so clear how important fluids were and i i'm pretty sure if you had asked me before i started this you know should you include fluids in this course i would have said ah you know it's probably probably do without it and now it's like oh my goodness no um, so fluids has become this much bigger part of how I look at physics uh, for the in the IPLS course. And there was one shocking moment. <laughs> uh, so I had thought for a long time about, you know, just thinking about gases in general and liquids in general. And I gave a talk, and I think it was Mike Klimkowski, who's a biologist from um, Boulder. And he said, why do you just, why do you keep talking about liquids? It's water. It's always water. And that was, that was uh, embarrassingly late in my IPLS experience. But to, th to think about, oh, you know, water is the liquid that you need to talk about. And, and you need to know about its properties and about those strong hydrogen bonds and the polarity and things like that that, make, um, that are so critical to what happens or doesn't happen. So I guess I'm saying that biologists are constantly, um, constantly telling, uh, informing what I do. Now, do you have a significant fraction of your IPLS students as more traditional biology majors and not pre-health majors? Oh, yeah, yeah. So no more than half are pre-professional. Pre yeah, and I had, I had sort of a what I almost call it a 75-25 mix where about a three quarters of my students when I was at UNE were uh, pre-health professional programs. And then, and then we had a strong marine science program. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah, they yeah, got, yeah. they got mixed in as well. And they, they sort of yawned at the, uh, 
at some of the the pre health topics, but <laughs> they got then excited about these these more biology type of topics. Absolutely, so, uh, that was always an interesting juggle to try to do too. And I often thought about like, well, we we need to split the, these audiences into their own classes as well. And that that's an important issue is that the the pre health folks have a set of concerns and interests, and the people who are interested in you know, the cellular level, the people who are interested in organisms at the or, organismal level, but not as health, you know, as we have lobster research, for example. <laughs> those, those folks have all different kinds of interests. I guess the one other thing I wanted to mention was that um, Jessica was always good about helping me remember the, the way I think about math and then the way that biologists think about the average biologist to be clear. The mythical average biology student thinks about math are very different. And, you know, for example, one of the things I would never do in that class would be to do a proof. You don't do a, it, it didn't seem worthwhile to do a proof. But what you do instead is you can like unpack an equation and say, well, here's the equation for uh, the Reynolds number or uh, work or something like that. So she had, she unpacked the equation for work thinking about dog sleds and how, you know, um, how the angle came in and how you would hang, um, how the dogs were tethered to the sled and, and why therefore you want the dogs to run straight ahead, for example. Um, so working with biologists and, and knowing that the, the average biology student is, isn't as comfortable with mathematics um, and that we spent, therefore spend time just kind of seeing what was the story in the equation rather than proving the equation. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll, I'll kind of start to think about wrapping things up with um, talking a bit about some of the successes that you've seen and some of the ongoing challenges that you continue to face. Well, um, as I mentioned before, the, there was certainly the success is finding so many different places where biology and physics overlap and inform each other, and that they're, they're accessible to me as a physics professor, and they're accessible to my students as biology students. So that's been great. And in this IPLS course, again, I mentioned, right, it was 250 students. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, another small success was actually introducing learning assistance into the lecture portion of the course. Okay. Um, and that was actually, again, it's a structure issue. We purposefully made the lecture hall in our new building so that facilitators could walk in between the rows. And so you can access every student in the class. You can stand in front mm -hmm. of them and and chat with them. Okay. So those have been some of the um, the things that I think are successes. I'm still uh, in in our large IPLS course. I still struggle about you know that last thing. Does the teacher care about me and how to make that um, how to make that obvious in a large course and whether it's something that um, is easier to do in a studio course. So I'd love to be able to move that um, into a, a studio format. And another thing I've been thinking about lately is student agency. 
that is, you know, the students are, they're told they have to take this course. It's a requirement. Um, they often, they, in our university, they often don't take it until they're a junior. And I've, I've seen their schedule and I know why it, it, it's that late. It's not easier to move it earlier. Um, and so then they don't, then it's hard for the biology professors to make physics a prereq. Um, and so they, they, they still struggle to see why are, am I being sent here? Even with the applications, it's really not enough until they can, um, I think, see it in, in more deep biological contexts. Sorry, but going back to agency, I got a little off track there. <laughs> and what we were talking about a minute ago, like where you said the pre-meds aren't excited about the same thing that the marine science people are excited about which makes sense, right? So my fantasy is to have a, a, like an ongoing assignment where I say, you go to the literature, you go to your textbook, you go to the web, and you find something that really excites you that involves physics and explore that. And so it gives them some choice and it gives them something, gives them the chance to connect because they can have a fountain of... Um, they, they're experts on what excites them, and it would be great to, to, to bring in their energy and their excitement to the class, which um, happens, you know, to some extent, but I think it could happen a whole lot more. Are there any other final thoughts that you, that you want to share? Um, I, think, I think we've tested their patience long enough. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks to the listeners. Thanks to you for such a fun conversation. And yeah, definitely, if great. you're interested in any of the, the SAP and the countercurrent exchanges, um, those things are on the Living Physics Portal. The, pa the SAP, how SAP moves up trees is not there quite yet, but should be there by the end, middle February. I'm not sure when this is mm -hmm. dropping, so we'll see. Okay, but but a lot of okay, a lot of these things are are getting up on the portal. Absolutely. Now. Okay. Yeah. Great. And, and I'm I'm seeing that as well. That I I went and I looked up some information before the holidays, and then I I pulled a little bit off again uh, in early January, and already I felt like I was finding new things that weren't there before. Yes. Yeah. I thought oh, this is great. We're, we're we're getting some movement now. Yeah. Uh, on here, this is wonderful. All right. Well, great. Thank you so much for the conversation today. This has been a lot of fun. I've, I've learned, I've learned a lot of cool stuff too. So this has been exciting for me as well. <laughs> Thanks so much, Fred. It's been good to talk to you. Thank you, Don, for a wonderful conversation. Sorry I made you wait so long for the episode. We recorded almost two months ago, but listening to it again now, even for me, was like getting to talk to you all over again. There is so much that has worked well for Don and her fellow teachers. But what I think was most striking about this episode was her willingness to share the stuff that didn't work. Modeling physics was a crash and burn for UNH. This is a great take home for all of us. What works for one classroom or school may not work for another. We need to think carefully about the size, structure, and adaptability of where we teach, who we teach, and who we personally are as teachers. So thinking ahead, I'm going to try something new in the next few episodes. I've been wanting to dive into the literature a bit read some articles in the Physics Teacher, American Journal of Physics, and Physical Review Special Topics, PER. I'm thinking I could read an article or two and record an episode summarizing the key ideas and reflecting on what I learned. Let me know what you think of the idea, and if you have a suggestion for an article, please share. Time to wrap this up. 
If you'd like to learn more about my guest today and read some of the articles that we talked about, you can find the show notes either on your podcast app or by checking out physicsalive.com slash dawn. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast so that you can stay up to date with each episode as it comes out. You can also find updates at Physics Alive on Twitter and Physics Alive page on Facebook. Thanks again for listening in, and I hope you've been inspired. Your homework assignment? Learn a new physics idea outside of the usual physics you're used to. Please join me again next time. Until then, enjoy your successes, learn humbly from your failures, take some good old deep breaths when you need them, and be well. Oh, and if you like this podcast, please take a minute to leave a five-star rating and maybe even a short review. This will help new listeners find the show. Please, please, pretty please. Thanks.